0: If you're pitching someone, the, the goal of it is to get them to be interested and want to ask more questions. It's kind of like you meet someone at a cocktail party. The first, you know, first thing they ask you, you're not going to tell them your life story. You're going to tell them one interesting thing and let the conversation unfold.
1: Welcome to the Design Rush podcast. I'm your host, Bianca Mayer. Today's special guest is Gregory Gallant, co-founder and CEO of Muckrak, known for innovatively connecting journalists with PR professionals and for creating the Shorty Awards. We'll explore Muckrak's evolution, technology's role in media relations, and Gregory's PR insights. Remember to like and subscribe for more discussions with industry leaders. Let's get into it. Alrighty, Greg, thank you again so much for joining us on the Design Rush Podcast. You know, it's super great to have you with us again. We're trying again.
0: (laughs) Great to be back.
1: Amazing. Um, Okay, so to kick things off, let's start from the top again. You know, we'd really love to just get to know you a little bit better, especially for our uh, unfamiliar audience. So first off, can you introduce yourself to our viewers a little bit and just about what it is that you do?
0: Sure. I'm Greg Gallant, the co-founder and CEO of Muckrack, that's M-U-C-K-R-A-C-K, a a play on uh, Muckraker, the old term for investigative journalists. And we're a platform that corporate communications departments and PR agencies use to find the right journalists to talk to and pitch uh, on a story idea to monitor the news, to know whenever they're mentioned in the press, uh, globally, online, in print, uh, on TV, and also to build reports on the effectiveness of all their communications and all, all, everything they do in, in relations to public relations to add up, you know, what does what all the coverage they get mean?
1: okay amazing now i also i think i asked you this last time but i'm gonna ask you this again because i just think it's so fascinating um you had a really impressive early start to your career i know that you started a web development business when you were 14 years old so just for our audience could you just explain how exactly did that come about
0: sure so this was in the late 90s i, I was a teenager i was bored in the suburbs and it was just when now the internet became commercially available. I had to dial in to get access to it using, uh, you know, a lot of people used AOL. I used a smaller competitor over there, is called Prodigy, to dial in, and they gave everybody web space. So I figured out how to make my own website, and then I thought, hey, this would be really useful for businesses if so they could have websites, and their customers and suppliers and everyone else could find them online. So uh, that led to the idea to, to, to start approaching companies and pitch them on the idea of building them a website. And it was a really kind of formative time for me because it, it actually wasn't that hard to convince them to trust the teenager with building them the website. The hard part was convincing them why they need a website. So now, of course, you know you'd think it was crazy if you came across some business and you couldn't find them on the web. They didn't have a website or a listing on any other website, but that's how it was back then. And a lot of people just didn't know why would I need a website? People can find me in the yellow pages. They can call our phone number. They can fax us or they could just walk into our store. So I had to kind of educate people on what, you know, what a website meant, what it was about, why they should do it. But it gave me as a, um, uh, you know, teenager with no, no experience and a real claim to be able to do this, a big advantage, because no one could say back then, Oh, I have five years experience building websites, or ten years experience, just because they they hadn't been around that long. So it made a level playing field for everybody. And then I, you know, we can go go on about if I've repeated that several times in my career as new mediums have come out and there have been ways to uh, ways to innovate.
1: Amazing! Um, I think it must have been quite incredible for a fourteen-year-old to walk into a company and say, "Hey, let me do your website for you," especially for what I can imagine must have been a bunch of boomers back then as well, not really knowing <laughs> what even a website is. So I think that's really inspiring and it's awesome that you jumped on it from from such a young age. Um, but moving on now, Greg, just to something that's obviously very close to your heart, which of course is Muckrack. Um, I'd love to delve a little bit more into that. Now, Can you just, from the horse's mouth, explain or expand, you know, the goals and the purpose of the Muckrack company?
0: Yeah, we want to help uh, organizations communicate better. And we also want to support a free press and give lots of uh, good resources to journalists. And uh, the way that Muckrack works, and and it's kind of different than everyone else in our industry, because we actually started Muckrack originally with the journalists uh, only in mind. We built a platform where all the journalists could find each other, create portfolios and show their work, became very popular with journalists. Uh, we had over 10,000 sign up completely free for the uh, journalists. And then we started uh, being in New York at the time. We just run into PR people and they would all tell us, hey, we're using the site to figure out which journalists to pitch. And then we looked into it and we saw that there was this big pain point that PR people just didn't have good tools to find the right journalist. And it was bad for both sides because the PR people couldn't figure out, hey, who's the right journalist to talk to? And the journalists were getting spam because all the PR people had were the the tools of the time they were all built. Like if you have a tech story, email a thousand tech journalists. But never mind that you know probably 80% of them would never cover you because maybe you're launching a you know a a hardware fitness device but your pitch is going to someone who only writes about b2b software or secured you know tech security or something like that so we realized like hey we could use all the data we have what the journalists are sharing what they're writing about and help you figure out the right journals to connect with so that that's how we started and it's still a really big part of muckrack it helps you find the right journalists to pitch based on everything they've written about in the past, uh, everything they've shared on social media. Now, we also have a lot of AI tools to help you go even further. So rather than having to blast out to lots of journalists, you could figure out, like, okay, like these are the five journalists that are going to be most likely to cover me. Let me really double down on reaching them. And then uh, from there, we've, we also found out that our customers had a big pain point on media monitoring that they have this really big need to figure out um, the moment they're being mentioned in the press. Maybe it's something good they want to double down on and get behind. Maybe it's a crisis or misinformation and they need to reach out to the people who are writing about them ASAP to get their side of the story out. And finally, we, we've seen this really big need for reporting where if you're a big brand you get you know thousands or tens of thousands of media mentions and you need to know hey what does it all mean how's it how's it trending are we you know improving our perception in the public is it declining do we need to change our messaging how are we doing relative Mm -hmm. to competitors is the message we really care about our key message getting out to the getting out with our coverage or, or are we not controlling the narrative so the reporting sets so up real-time dashboards so that big brands can know, hey, are, you know, are things going all right? Where do we need to course correct? How do we need to kind of keep reinvesting in communications?
1: Okay. Now you mentioned uh, something earlier about you know integrating AI and stuff into Muckrack. Now, what does that look like at the moment?
0: Yeah. So we've actually been using AI for. Um, probably you know at least five years, even longer, to do a lot of the processing and uh, uh, kind of machine learning to categorize the millions of articles that we're processing every day. So there's nothing new to us, but we've seen a lot of uh, more advanced uses of AI that we've been able to implement in the last few months and will keep implementing in the years to come. Uh, so some recent examples include uh, presspal.ai, a free service that we launched where you can uh type in kind of the basics of a press release that you need to send out. It'll use generative AI to flush out the whole press release for you. And then of course, you know, you'd never send that, but then that gives you a nice template that you can use to start editing and, and kind of finessing to what you need. Same for if you need to write a pitch and it'll help you. Big thing people don't understand when they pitch journalists, the pitch needs to be really short. And so here we actually use AI to keep your pitch short rather than spew out something super long. So we do a lot of the work uh, for our customers with that tool and training it. And then it also helps you figure out who to send the press release to, because that's the hard part. You can write a press release or a pitch, but if you don't know who to send it to, you're kind of stuck. So it'll automatically make suggestions there. Similarly, it can automatically expand your media list, so if you already have a list of like. 20 journalists you want to go after, it'll just recommend additional journalists to add to that. Kind of like how you have a Spotify playlist that, you know, you've got your, your 20 favorite songs and it's like, what well, do you want to listen to this song next based on that?
1: Okay, cool. So on that note as well, what would you say are the most surprising um, conclusions of the state of AR and PR uh, in January 2024 that I know Muckrak recently released?
0: Yeah, we've seen that, uh, you know, there was initially a lot, you know, some trepidation around AI, but there's just been a um, tremendous amount of uh, adoption over the last uh, last several months and many more, um, many more PR people kind of working into the workflows, but yet we've been seeing it really, you know, make them more effective at their jobs because a lot one of the big challenges in PR that we've heard ever since we we started Muckrack and you know started giving more tech tools to the PR industry is that people go into PR because they want to be storytellers, they want to be communicators, they want to build relationships, they want to figure out um, you know this more strategy work of how you communicate, and then what everyone ends up doing is they spend all their day copying and pasting data into Excel spreadsheets for this you know figuring out who they want to pitch copy and paste copy and paste to get coverage copy and paste copy and paste uh so a big part of ai is that it, you know it's been able to accelerate that even further and kind of liberating them from the mundane elements of it and really being able to double down on uh, uh on kind of what matters in uh pr
1: Now, we also know that obviously like writing a copy for social media is one of the most popular uses for AI. Now, what have you heard about like the latest popular use that really actually works?
0: Yeah, see. Uh, so, you know, of course, aside from writing copy, uh, you know, another big thing we've seen is just insights. We launched a tool called Spike Alerts. So it'll notify you when, if, if you're monitoring a. A broad term. Let's say you're doing, you know, PR, and you're monitoring the Coca-Cola brand. That like you can never keep up with every media mention of Coke, and you can't get a, you know, buzz on your phone every time globally. Some some something mentions it, but it'll let you know if it's spiking in coverage and give you a lot of tools then to figure out like, hey, why is it spiking? What's the theme in the recent coverage? So you can really uh, kind of do a level of analysis that'd be impossible for a human to do in such a short amount of time.
1: Okay. Amazing. Now, just going a little bit back, you know, to talking about pitching to journalists and stuff like that. Now, in your experience, Greg, what would you say are the key elements that really make a pitch to journalists stand out and be well received? Yeah,
0: one one thing, like I mentioned before, is brevity. Uh, just really short, clear writing. I find, I think where a lot of people go wrong is that, uh, especially if you get kind of classic PR training, you learn about how to write a press release and that's, you know, write 500 words and answer the five W's, who, what, where, when, and why. And that's all fine for, you know, your own press release about it or if you were the one actually writing the news story, like a journalist is. But if you're pitching someone, the the goal of it is to get them to be interested and wanna ask more questions. It's kind of like you meet someone at a cocktail party, the first, you know, first thing they ask you, you're not gonna tell them your life story, you're gonna tell them one interesting thing and let the conversation unfold. So I think that's kind of how you have to think about a release, kind of like the opening, or your pitch is kind of the opening gambit to a conversation. So it's really thinking, how do you make it short? How do you make it pithy? Another really important thing is to step back and think like, hey, what's newsworthy about what I'm releasing? And I think uh, uh, us entrepreneurs are the worst with this because whenever an entrepreneur, an executive, uh, you know, you build something yourself, you're like, hey, our company did this. Isn't it awesome? Shouldn't everyone want to write about it? It's like, well. Not really like it's it's great your company did that but why is it news you know if another company did that would you want to read a news article about that when you open the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal like probably not so you have to step back and think okay well what are we doing how, you know for one like uh, I say probably the biggest thing is like how can you connect it to a trend so like how does what are we doing connect to some bigger trend that the media is looking to write about so I mean, you know, one super obvious one right now, and you know, this might have already played out too much. But hey, if you're doing something, if you're doing a, a broad tech platform, but it's got an AI element to it, um, you know, throw that in there, lead with that. I mean, we we did that uh, a few months ago when we launched PressPal. You know, that ship's probably already sailed, right? Now everyone <laughs> says everything's AI, so you have to think, okay, well, what's the next level of it? Does it tie into, you know? Ethical AI or security issues people care about, or how does it relate to, you know, the the latest trends and what's going on with, uh, you know, OpenAI and Google. So you, you have to always be like reading the news and figuring out. And we have a free tool called Muckrack Trends that can help you figure this out and see what what terms are, are trending up and trending down. Uh, but you have to always kind of have your your finger on the pulse of the zeitgeist and kind of understand where. The public conversation going, and then you have to deeply understand your company. If you work in house or your client, if you work at a PR agency and know what's coming, you know, what's unique about your company, what features are going to be launched, uh, what new products are going to be launched and figure out how do you connect those two? And how do you make it into, you know, how, how, could it be a really compelling story? And only then you, you know, you write the brief pitch and then you send it to the right journalist, but you have to, you have to kind of start with the story.
1: Okay. So actually, I feel like you've kind of already answered my, my question that I was going to ask, which is, you know, what's more important to get a journalist attention? Is it a good email template or a good story? But I feel like you've already said that, you know, having a good story as opposed to just a template that you send out um, works better. But where would you say that instances are where a good email template really works if you have to like bang out a whole bunch of emails to a bunch of people or is there a way that you can balance both
0: yeah i think you actually need both or, or in other words like one's a prerequisite to the other where if you don't have a good story you could have the best email template in the world you could even have the best relationships in the world you could have a journalist you know where you, you go to drinks every week and you've got them you know, in your cell phone, like they're just not gonna write a lame story. Like it's gonna make them look bad in front of their editor in front of their readers. You know, they have metrics too. They have to, you know, they they have to write stories that get uh, get attention. So the story is essential. And you know, if you have an amazing story, you could even have a bad email template. Like imagine you were the head of PR for Apple, there's a new iPhone coming out. Doesn't matter what your email template is, like people are gonna want to write about that. But the problem is, most of us don't have a story that good. You know, most of us aren't launching a new iPhone, so we have to work for it, and we need, you know, we need to have a good email template because uh, people aren't going to give us the benefit of the doubt the, the way that they would Apple. So I, I think when it comes to an email template, it's about uh, what one is to have an awesome subject line. I can't tell you how many times I see companies where like. They start uh, a Google Doc and they're all making a million edits on the body of an email, but no one bothered to write. Well, what's the subject of the email going to be? And then at the last second before it's sent, you know, someone makes up the subject. You know, pitch ID, story idea or something lame. It's like hey, you should be spending at least as much time on the subject as you are on the body, and, and you know, start start with the subject. Uh, you know, maybe even before you get to the body of the email. So that subject line super important um keeping the pitch just like you know i'd say in our in our, our research we find that journalists really don't want it more than a couple paragraphs even a lot of journalists even want it shorter so really going for that brevity and just force yourself not to let it go above a couple hundred words if that and then uh finally the other, the other pieces like don't get too focused on the template Cause you really need to customize that template for every journalist. And we actually built the Muckrack pitching system and we were the first to do this in a way that, uh, you set up your template, but if you're sending the email through Muckrack, it encourages you almost, almost requires you to customize every version of that template to each journalist you've selected for it to go to before it goes out. That's just essential. And, uh, and that's where I think with each one, you know, referencing that you've read their past work, saying why you think it's relevant to them and, and, you know, anyone, and we've all probably been on the receiving end of it, of people trying to pitch us stuff. Maybe it's a product to buy or something like that. And you always know, you know, if you're getting an email that looks like it's the exact same thing that a thousand other people got, delete, right? You feel no, no, you know, Uh, compulsion to even reply to say no but if you're if you get an email where it's clear hey this email was written for you you feel you know there's almost like a moral feeling that you know hey I owe a reply or at least you know like hey some effort went into this maybe I'm one of the few people getting it maybe it's worth engaging and you know it matters even more for journalists because they're thinking like hey if this has gone out to a thousand of my colleagues, and I bother to write about it, there might be ten other stories about it, and then my story's not unique. And my story's not unique; it's not going to get a lot of attention. And you know, why get out of bed out of the day? You know, why get out of bed in the morning just to uh, just to write the same story that a dozen other people are writing? Versus if yeah. you're like, hey, this my this story is meant for me. They sent it just to me. If I jump on this now. I'll probably be the you know the first or maybe the only one to write this story that's that's a lot more compelling that's where if you're customizing it 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 shows them that you know that opportunity might be there
1: exactly um do you have any tools or resources that you recommend people you know get educated about finding the best angle for pitching titles
0: yeah we actually have a free academy with muckrack if you just go to academy.muckrack.com or just google muckrack academy find it we have a whole bunch of courses including one on media relations that we partnered with michael smart who's probably the best known uh, trainer on media relations and pitching and so you can take that it's a two-hour free course you actually get a certification at the end of it and he walks you through you know everything we just talked about but in a lot more detail and with a lot more more colored or and shows you real life examples you can actually see like here's a good pitch here's a bad pitch and and dig into what's going to work
1: amazing i'm definitely going to check that out um so what would you say greg as well just moving on a little bit now what mistakes would you say um pr professionals should avoid when trying to reach out to journalists i know we said we need some brevity and all of that there but is there anything else that you would say really ticks that box of like don't go there
0: oh man, there's so many mistakes. Uh, you know, the worst is when someone doesn't properly code up the media merge and got a high first name, would you like to cover this story? And that's why, you know, again, we're, we're huge believers in having that workflow that lets you customize every single version. Yeah, another is just sending the, you know, another, I mean, a big one is just sending the pitch to the wrong people. And it goes back to where, where I started that a lot of people in the industry still operate that way where they think about, quantity rather than quality and they just figure you know what like it'd be a lot more work to figure out like who are the 10 best journalists so let me just send it to a thousand journalists like why not you know i just need to get a few stories who cares if i send it to 999 of the wrong people if i still get to those 10. and i think it's very short-sighted because what happens is that uh the journalists who see that totally irrelevant pitch And then journalists know the difference, like sometimes they get good good pitches and they turn them down because they're too busy or whatnot. When they get the totally irrelevant pitch, the pitch where it's like, hey, if you spent five seconds, you know, looking at my muckrack profile or reading my past work, you'd know I would never cover that in a million years. Then they know you're not being respectful of their time. So, you know the least worst thing that could happen is that they'll just see your name and your company back, like, you know, I'm not going to open emails from that person anymore. The next worst is they'll hit spam and then that's going to train spam filters not to accept emails from your com- from you or your company anymore. And the worst and then what's happened a lot now is that the journalist screenshot the bad pitch and post it to social media. And that, you know, is like the, the worst thing that can happen to you. Uh, in this industry. So, you know, it's a dangerous thing to just be sending these unfocused pitches and I think uh, you know, not not, you know, both both there are consequences, but also it's not the right thing to do and it's not an effective way to do PR.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so obviously there are so many ways of reaching out to journalists these days. You know, this includes things from the company's press email or the journalist's email or even like their social media pages. But which one would you say gets the better results?
0: Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, when we survey journalists, the journalists as a whole overwhelmingly prefer email. They prefer that over being, they like it when people follow them on social but most journalists don't wanna be pitched on social. So what I always advise people to do is, hey, if you're interested in uh, pitching a journalist, follow them on social. If you have lead time, interact with them and interact with their social media posts for a while, read their work, show them you, you, know, you respect what they're doing as, as well you should, because otherwise why would you pitch them? Uh, but then when it comes to the pitch, if you, unless the journal specifies otherwise, otherwise, do the pitch by email. That said, though, there are a handful of journalists, and they'll often specify it on their muckrack profile or their social profile, where they will say, "Hey, I'm, I'm happy to get the pitch DM to me or whatever." So, uh, in those cases, you can do it. But if you do that, still make sure. And a lot of people screw this up surprisingly. Like, make sure that you're sending it as a private social media message. You know, DM on Twitter, a message on Instagram. Some people do it as a public, you know, at mention, like would you write about this or a comment on someone's Instagram post? And you know, it's just unprofessional. And then the journalist is also like, Well, it's not news anymore because you just told everybody publicly yeah. on social media what it is. So it's going to look really lame if I just write about the thing you asked me to write about publicly. Uh, so, yeah, don't make that mistake, <laughs> uh, you know. And then what I do find sometimes works is you can sometimes do a two step and you have to be very Thoughtful about how you do this, but I I found sometimes we're we're pitching stories, you know, we want to be in these too. We'll pitch a journalist by email, but if it's a journalist that I know well and we're at, at a point in our relationship, you know, again, it has to be a pre existing relationship, but if we're at the point in the relationship where we're DMing or we're texting, I'll sometimes follow up with a DM or a text and be like, just Hey, we shot you an email last week. Just want to check if you saw it. No worries if you're not interested. Just let us know so you know we know it didn't go to spam. And then I find you know some of the relationships that everyone's usually like, oh yeah, sorry I missed that. Let me respond now. Or oh sorry, I'm just too busy right now, but thanks for following up. So I think that's okay. But you need that's again where you got to you got to invest first in the relationship before you can start pinging people through other means like that because otherwise it just feels feel spammy
1: yeah exactly okay so on that note about having like a pre-existing relationship how would you say PR professionals should go about approaching journalists to actually create a particularly like long-lasting partnership with them like what is the best way would you say once again like following them on social media and like supporting the stuff that they're doing sharing their stuff like are there any other types of ways that they could do that
0: yeah. So, so of course, yeah, social media is the obvious one. I think the number one thing is be helpful beyond what you want to get pitched. And so you're, if you're doing PR, you're probably an expert on a few things. If you're in house, you're definitely going to be an expert on the industry that your company operates in. And even if you're an agency, you've probably become an expert on the industries that all your clients are in. So a lot of times the journalists will, will post on social like, Hey, I'm looking for, you know, a source on this. Or maybe you know about something interesting in the industry that you think would be a good story that doesn't relate to your own company. That's the best time to be reaching out to a journalist. Just be like, hey, you know, I I do PR here. This doesn't serve me at all. But there's this big trend. You should know about this thing. Maybe think about writing, writing about it or, oh, I saw on social you're looking for, you know, an expert in semiconductors. You know, our company doesn't do semiconductors, but I happen to you know, we have this partner or I happen to know this person who is an expert in semiconductors, let me connect you. So it's showing that you can be helpful. And then when your name appears in their inbox, they know like, oh, Bianca is very helpful. Like, I, you know, it's, it's gonna be a good thing when I open her email versus in cases where, uh, you know, you, you, know, it's just the only time they hear from you is when you want something, it's not gonna be so useful. Just like any other relationship,
1: yeah and that's then, exactly what i was
0: gonna say yeah and you know beyond that it, it depends a lot on the person like i remember i was once moderating a panel with a couple of journalists and one of them was like hey you know what if you're you know if you're talking to me like you should be taking me out to coffee or drinks like i like to know people you know i, I like you know i want to know the people that i'm working with and then the next journalist was like the worst thing in the world would be to have to go meet any of you for coffee or drinks like i'm an introvert I want to be in my apartment writing like that's why I became a journalist I like to write so you know to me that is an instructive lesson where um you know everyone wants you to be helpful everyone wants you to read their stuff everyone wants you to follow them on social and then beyond that when it comes to relationship building it's you know human beings are very different so you have to really learn the person and then figure out what's the right way to engage with them
1: Well, also on that note, we do know that a lot of journalists obviously, like, ask for a fee when, you know, or in return for pitching a story. So what is your take on that?
0: Yeah, so, you know, most people at reputable outlets uh, won't take money to write about a story. And in fact, you know, if someone at any major media outlet, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, Time, like, if, if they if it came out that i mean i'm sure none of them would ask for a fee but if they did they would definitely get fired like that's kind of a third rail but then i do know that you know it's it's kind of a wide media world out there and uh there are a lot of smaller publications and uh you know new things being started all the time that don't follow the traditional rules um so I, you know, I, I can never say exactly what someone else should do in that regard, but I think you have to be really careful about getting into doing something like that. I think a lot of the people who would ask for the fee, um, you know, probably don't have that meaningful of audience anyhow, so it can be a red flag. And then also you have to worry about regulatory issues because if if the fee, it'd be one thing if the fee is disclosed and it's like. Hey, and you do see that on on a lot of places like, you know, even on Amazon, you'll see sponsored reviews uh, and and there is actually a place, you know, where they they can have these kind of special sections that are paid. Like you read a magazine and this does happen in reputable magazines that they'll say at the top, if it's disclosed, you know, this is a paid feature. And we partnered with this brand to write this thing. And it kind of looks like an article, but it's disclosed. It's really with this brand. Uh, So, so long as it's disclosed, I think it's kosher, but the the thing that I would really avoid is uh, when someone asks for the fee and you're not planning on disclosing it because that, I think one, it's unethical because they're now misleading their audience because they got paid off and they're writing about this thing and it can create legal liability and the FTC has gone after people for not disclosing those paid relationships. So I I think, you know, when you go into it, if you're really going for earned media, it's only earned if you're not paying for it. So I think the best way to do it is not to pay a fee. But if you are going to pay a fee, just make sure that it gets disclosed and it's all being done above board. And then, you know, just double check that where you're, you know, that you're going to get the value for this.
1: Okay. Um, Yeah, I think a lot of people really just want transparency with any sort of media that they're consuming, right? Um, So yeah, I think that's very good advice. Now, just moving on a little bit. Now, looking from like a journalist's perspective, um, what do you think that they can do to really like maximize their presence in a media monitoring tool like Macrack?
0: Yeah, I think from the journalist perspective, one is uh, journals can claim their profile. We're the only platform that allows that. And by claiming your profile, you can decide like, what are the right stories to feature on there? uh also you know let us know i mean our our system does a great job pulling in all the stories from a journalist but you know let's say you wrote something for some small trade publication that doesn't even have a website you can upload a pdf of that work. So you can really make sure that the uh that the profile is complete and rounded out we also have an editorial team so for some journalists who are too busy to claim the profile and log in themselves you can just email our editorial team and they'll uh They'll do it all for you. You could say, Hey, you missed the story here. I'd like this story featured, or I, I just got a promotion, so I'll update my job title. Uh, so it gives journalists a lot of flexibility there. And what we find happens with a lot of journalists is like they make a website once, either they go to you know, Squarespace or they have that friend who's a programmer and they ask them to make a website. They make some beautiful website. But they're busy, right? It's a lot of work to be a journalist. And then you look at the website three years later and you go to the portfolio and they haven't had time to update the portfolio in three years. So you see a lot of people end up defaulting to their Muckrack portfolio instead of their own website, or they just make the portfolio section of their own website a link to Muckrack and have their their website just be their bio and other things don't change a lot. So I think it's a really big opportunity for journalists to kind of take control of how they're presented on the web.
1: Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's probably the easiest way to do it is just to link it right back to your your Muckrack portfolio as well. So um, just transitioning a little bit again now, Greg. Now, I don't know if you know this, but we at Design Rush specialize in connecting businesses with top professional agencies. Um, So from your perspective at Muckrack, How important has it been for your business or businesses in general, especially like in the PR and media sector, to partner with the right agencies like web design, digital marketing, and just say for instance, like overall brand strategy? Um, I mean, how do you see platforms like Design Rush um, really playing a role in this ecosystem?
0: Yeah, I found it's been essential to find the right people to work with, both employees and agencies. And we've used a bunch over the years, you know, both building our in-house marketing and PR team. But then we found working with agencies uh, super valuable too, because a lot of times, uh, you know, when when you're spending all your time just working in one company, you're not getting to see the best ideas that are emerging out of a bunch of other places. So we've always kind of brought agencies in here and there to help us and figure out like okay what you know what marketing best practices or seo best practices or design best practices are we missing where can you add extra value and how can we really uh supercharge things
1: okay um now again shifting gears a little bit now uh to a topic that's of course especially since covid uh reshaped our professional lives and i'm talking about remote work as if anybody is surprised (laughs) now in 2021, I know that you helped, uh, the work remotely forever pledge. Um, this was a commitment by business leaders intended, you know, not to force employees to work from offices. Now I'd love to know, Greg, what exactly inspired you to initiate this movement?
0: So we've been remote first, uh, pretty much since we started. So when we started, we did have an office, but about half of our team was always just remote, you know, living in whatever city they happened to live in. So they, were, of course, you know, working remotely. And then we were like, well, you know, it'd be kind of silly to force the people who happen to live near our office to come in, when if they didn't live near the office, we'd be fine with them working from home. So we never forced anyone into the office pre-COVID. And on the average day, you know, the office would be half empty. In fact, people would come visit the office, and they'd be like. Are you guys doing okay? Cause like there's no one around here. And we're like, no, the business is great. We're, you know, we're growing double digits, but we're just not making people come in. And and everyone would be like, Well, how do you know if anyone's actually working? And I'd always throw it back and then I'd be like, How do you know if anyone's working in your office? And we we've always been big believers that you have to hire really motivated people and set up good KPIs to measure performance against. So that that's how we always operated then during the pandemic of course we had to shut our office uh, as did everyone else made it a much easier transition for us because we didn't have a server we didn't have a whiteboard we didn't have any papers we were already had zoom and dropbox and slack and you know all the best uh best remote working tools and then we grew a lot and then uh a lot of the new people we hired were spread out all around and when we surveyed nobody wanted to come back to the office so we totally ditched the office when the lease was up in 2021 but then we were thinking about it and i noticed that like a lot of companies you know at first i thought like hey well we've lost our competitive advantage it used to be that we were unique and that we didn't make people come to an office and then for a while there during the pandemic everybody didn't make some didn't make anyone come to the office so we are like, oh, you know, we're, we're, you know, what what makes us unique? And then we realized like, oh wait, all these companies, like a lot of them, are thinking about making people come back. And I saw in a lot of my friends who worked at those kinds of companies that they weren't giving clear guidance, though, if they were ever going to make people come back or not. And it created all this angst because a lot of people had moved. Uh, in some cases, just out to the suburbs, or somewhere a lot further from headquarters. So, whereas before the pandemic, they would, would have had a ten-minute commute, now they would now, now they'd be have an hour commute if they had to come back, or they move to a totally different city, or they're in limbo. They don't know if they can move or not because they don't know if this company is going to force them back. So, the kind of statement we wanted to make was like, hey, at the very least, just tell people if you're gonna co- make them come back or not so they can start planning their lives. And then we were also uh, were and, and very much are believers that it, for a knowledge working company, you know, where you don't have a factory where it's people working with their minds in the computer, that they can be just as so effective remotely as they would be in an office. I mean, there are pros and cons, but there's so many pros to being remote we were, were believers that you know on on par it's better to be remote so th- this was a way for us to tell not only our employees but encourage other companies to join us and saying like hey if you take a job here you're you know it's not going to be a year later hey it'd be great if you came to the office It's now we're going to support remote work forever And we felt it was a great template to show so if you're uh someone who's looking for a job and you want to be able to work remotely, that you can see in one place what companies are committed to remote work.
1: Okay. I mean, yeah, I think it's it's very interesting because you're saying that, or as you said, there's a lot of companies that, you know, were kind of wishy-washy about like, are we going back to the office? Are we not going back to the office? And I think that was a really cool initiative that you guys instated as well. So just regarding that as well, you know, what do you see in the future of this pledge you know like what is the end game um or where do you hope to see it go in the next coming years
0: yeah we want to keep uh getting more companies to join us on this i think more and more companies are realizing that remote work works and that it's uh or we even call it distributed because there's nothing to be remote from if you don't have an office but we went with remote work because that's what most people call it Uh, But we wanna encourage more companies to do this uh, because, you know, I mean, and I do have to back up, you know, it's not necessarily for everybody. Like I was saying, if you have some company designing hardware, maybe you wanna be in the office to play with the iterations of the hardware. But I think a lot more companies than are doing it could really benefit from it. And then I find also so many companies just doing ridiculous things. Like I I talked to so many people where they have to come to the office Everyone shows up in an office, closes the door to their office and, and gets on Zoom or they come to the office and then everyone's working with other people in other offices. Uh, so I've seen that a lot, especially at these really big companies where it's like, yeah, you've got to go to your office and commute an hour. But then the project you're working on is with people at other offices of your company in different cities or countries even. So, uh, you know, I I think there's been kind of a lot of people just wanting to go back to how it was. We have to remember, it's not like, you know, it's not like the modern office is something that was, you know, natural, like a rainforest and something that, you know, when humans evolved, it was always there. Like, this is something that was invented, you know, in less than the last hundred years. And it's not necessarily here to stay. And I think, you know, I think the there will always be places people congregate to work, but what we know is the office pre-pandemic might have just, you know, we might look back on that and be like, oh yeah, that made sense for like 50 years of human history. And then when all these digital tools came out, we realized like it doesn't make sense to, you know, have everyone sitting in some cubicle with a big monitor in front of them that you could have either no office at all for some companies like we're doing but maybe for other companies you have kind of a hangout space and you just have places people can pull up to with their laptops or it's all organized around the meeting spaces Then you go home to do your solitary work so i think i think there's a lot that can be rethought and we want to kind of push people to think more creatively versus just kind of like this very regimented return to office feeling and let's get let's get things back to the way they were
1: Absolutely. I am a hundred percent on board with you. Not just because I've been a remote worker even before COVID, but I do believe that, you know, I know that there are some people that do benefit from being in an office environment. I do know there are some people that don't want to work from home. But like you just mentioned, I think there is a benefit to having like a space where people can meet and like you said, around the meeting spaces and you can interact, you know, on the days that you feel like you need to get out of the house. I really do think that's, that's definitely the way to go. Um, So what kind of benefits have you, you know, verified since implementing and maintaining a remote workforce? What would you say are like the three top ones?
0: Number one, you can get the best talent anywhere. And once you've gotten used to this, I mean, our leadership team spread out between New York, Miami, uh, the Bay Area and California, um, Massachusetts, uh, Colorado, um, uh, Chicago. So, you know, plus we have a great team members, you know, uh, not just the U.S., but Canada, Italy, Argentina, warsaw so you know really all over and then once you've been doing this it starts to feel insane to limit a search to one city like now i feel like wait it's hard enough to find great talent when you're searching globally especially as you're growing and you need like much more specialized positions uh you're it seems like it'd be crazy even if you pick the best talent markets you know if you were to pick New York or the Bay Area or Austin, if you told me like, wait, you just you can only hire in one of them. It's just like, oh, wait, but why would I shut myself off to 90% of the talent pool? So I think that's number one. And then I find, you know, people end up traveling for work all the time anyhow, or working from home. So it's like you're, you know, barely matters where, where people are for a lot of these roles. Uh, anyhow, so... Yeah, I'd say number one is getting that great talent. Uh, number two is giving them a lot of flexibility because we find a lot of really great workers like need this particular uh, kind of setup. And I remember when we, when we used to have the office, it was always awkward because you'd have a you know programmers like deep into a programming problem and then someone wants to ask them a question. They go back to their programming problem. They're like, ah, oh, it was like, you know, I spent the last hour kind of working this issue out. Now I forgot because I had this five-minute conversation on something else, and it's gonna take me like another 20 minutes to get back into this. So I used to see the programmers that all wear big headphones to signal like, don't talk to me. And then it's like, well, what's the point of coming to the office just to be like, don't talk to me with these headphones. Same with the salespeople. It used to be all pre-pandemic that, you had, that salespeople had to be in the office. Like, yeah, the programmers, maybe they can work from home, but the salespeople, they got to be in there for that collective energy. We never made the salespeople come in. I always saw our best salespeople were the ones who liked working from home the most because really great salespeople, they're always thinking like, how can I optimize my day? And I saw even people who lived, you know, maybe a half hour subway ride from the office back when we had one, they and a lot of them would only come in maybe once a week, once a month. And I'd sometimes just ask them, like, hey, I'm just curious. you know, I thought... Salespeople are social. Like, don't you want to be coming to the office every day? And they'd be like, hey, look, you know, half hour subway ride plus like another five minutes to leave my apartment building and five minutes to get into the office and five minutes to get situated and say hi to people. So, you know, maybe that's 40 minutes total. You know, so you add that up. That's an hour and 20 minutes a day round trip. Like, I can spend an extra hour and 20 minutes talking to customers, being on demos, selling the software. Like, oh, that's a really good point. And then they, they used to always complain, you know, they're talking over each other in an open office, or that there's not enough conference rooms. And I saw a lot of people just set up a nice home office. You know, a lot of them, my a lot of our top salespeople, like they're in their bedroom, but they set it up. They got a nice com- comfy chair, nice desk, and they're killing it uh, and and working hard. Also, then I see, you know, both for parents, like a lot of them, they want to be able to send their kid off to school. Uh, you know, help pick pick their kid up from school and then get back to it after that. So it allows for that flexibility. Finally too, I saw over uh, the pandemic, a lot of people got dogs and now they do not want to leave the dogs. So I've seen a lot of people where they're like, Hey, you know, I got this COVID puppy. It expects me to be there all the time. So the idea of leaving that puppy alone for nine hours while, you know, eight hours for work, an extra hour for commute, if you're lucky. Uh, seems awful and then you can't, you know, can't go out after work because then you're gone longer. And I've seen all these people got these cameras at home so now they could see the puppy like waiting for them by the door. Guilt trips them even more. So a uh, whole, whole bunch of reasons I think why remote work is just so powerful.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I am definitely one that has been caught up with, the, uh, with not wanting to leave my dogs <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I get that a hundred percent. And I can see it from, you know, wanting your kids, wanting to send your kids off to school, making their lunch. You know, it does just provide so much more flexibility and I'd say a great like work-life balance, you know. Um, but just on the flip side, what challenges would you say have emerged from a remote work um culture and how has muckrack addressed those
0: yeah i think that there is, it's a great question and, and you know be naive to say hey there are no challenges uh any working environment creates its own set of challenges i think one is and this is something i think is an understated challenge for in-office companies but man makes itself even clearer with remote companies is that you need to set up really clear metrics for success and uh, measure work. And that measurement shouldn't be how many hours is somebody working. It should be all about, you know, their effectiveness and, and what they're, you know, the output that they're driving. And a lot of people in office environments, they don't set up thoughtful, thoughtful metrics. So unfortunately the metric is just, well, who's at the office, the the longest, but you don't know. Someone might be at the office checking their Facebook feed or not really doing any work, uh, and then you might have someone else who's super effective, but they want to leave at five o'clock every day because they have to pick their kid up. But it, you know, it sends a bad vibe, and people are like, well, why isn't why isn't this person staying later like the rest of us? So um, I, I think you know the uh, being remote it forces you to to grapple with like, okay, well, what are the metrics that matter? We're huge believers in the OKR system, objectives and key results, which was a system that was pioneered by Andy Grove, the former uh, CEO of Intel. And the idea is that every quarter you set up like what are the objectives and key results for the company, uh, and they're all all those key results are measurable, like hey improve this metric by twenty percent or whatever it is, and then that breaks down so that everybody at the company has you know goals that relate to that. It's also transparent, so. Everyone at the company can see those objectives and key results and know like, what are the company priorities? So you never, you don't have to wonder like, well, am I working on something that matters to the company? We're just being a hundred percent reliant on your boss to communicate that effectively to you. So, you know, that's been one of the huge things. Another is that you still have to create culture and communications among your team and create a sense of camaraderie. So I find a lot of people, they tried out remote work, Uh, during the pandemic but because they figured they'd go back to an office soon enough they never invested in it but the second you say hey we're not going back to an office then then you can actually take all those resources that used to spend on the office snacks and you know getting the temperature right to appease everybody and your your it systems for your conference rooms and all those other headaches and put it into like well how do we make a great remote culture so we do a lot. We're very thoughtful about how we set up Slack, about uh, team Zooms, we'll highly produce. We even have uh, one of our programmers, a DJ's. So we even have a DJ at the beginning of the uh, Zoom to really hype everybody up and set the, uh, set the vibe for the meeting. Then we, and, and then the other point I want to make is that just being distributed or remote, it doesn't mean you can never meet in person so we're, we're we're actually big believers in the value of meeting in person building relationships in person we just did our first ever all-company off-site where we flew everyone in the company to cancun uh it's so over 200 people and everyone got to spend uh several days uh, working together meeting together and you know just having some fun together too because we we find you know once if you know someone it makes the relationship so much stronger than if you uh if you never met them in person. In addition to that, we do hub events. So if you happen to live in a city where a bunch of other people at our company live, like Chicago or New York or Austin, there'll be a regular hub event that you can just meet up for, uh, for drinks or an activity and, and catch up with a bunch of people in, you know, in your team that way. And then various teams will also do their own retreats uh, to get people together. So I, I think it gives the best of both worlds. And I know, you know, from our team, like everyone was a lot more expen- a lot more excited about going to Cancun rather than having to go to an office. And it's in fact, you know, less expensive to fly everyone to exotic places and meet than it is to maintain an office, at least in most cases. So I think you can deploy your dollars a lot more thoughtfully to uh, let your company, uh, you know, meet up and connect with each other than with an office.
1: Exactly. So, okay. What advice in all of those cases would you say, or would you share with companies that are considering to transition into a fully remote workplace model? I mean, specifically in terms of, you know, maintaining that team coordination and collaboration.
0: Yeah. So I think, you know, a lot of it is being thoughtful about your tools. I think having, a good way. You know, there's a lot of different systems you can use. Uh, We use OKRs, like I said, but there are a lot of similar ideas, like um, Salesforce has something called V2MOM. It stands for values to something, something. I don't remember exactly. There's something called the Entrepreneur Operating System or or lots of others. And I, I think it really matters what you choose, just as long as you have a system and you can make up your own too. But but I find, you know, way too many companies are not thoughtful about it and they don't think they don't think in terms of a system. They're just like, hey, I wish my organization would do this. I don't understand why they're not doing it. And it's like, well, you didn't set up a system, so no one, you know, so when you when you have one person or even if you have a five person company you can get by without having a system and just tell people this is what we're gonna do. But once you get beyond that, it's like if you don't have a way to communicate where you wanna go uh, in a very clear way that everyone understands and everybody gets trained in, then you can't get a large group of people to go in the same direction. So that's where I think it's essential to be thoughtful about setting up these systems, having some kind of software, it could be a Google Doc, it could be a specialized software that that tracks all this for you, like a performance management system. But if you have a specialized you know, tools for it and let everyone know where to go look at it, you're going to be able to move your company a lot more deliberately. And uh, in a way, you know, a lot of people spend a lot of time coming up with the strategy, but if you have a strategy and you can't execute it, then the strategy is irrelevant. Whereas if you know you can execute because you can communicate, you can even have a crappy strategy, it'll kind of be fine because you'll you'll execute it and then you'll find out the strategy sucks and then you can adjust your strategy pretty quickly and then you know eventually you'll get to the right strategy whereas you get out the perfect strategy and if you can never execute it then you're always just spinning your wheels
1: exactly i mean I've, i've always thought that you know having a strategy is better than having no strategy at all and like you said you learn from your mistakes uh when you're going into that so um just finally on the topic of remote work we know that a lot of these tech billionaires, like for instance Elon Musk, have a very different opinion on remote work, claiming that um, like people are more productive when they're in person. What is your counter argument to that?
0: Yeah, so I would say you know there's the argument people are more productive when they're in person, and again you know I have to caveat it all with it, it depends what you're doing. If you're designing. Uh, a rocket or a car where you're going to need to be near the hardware like that then no dispute i'm sure that's true but when it comes to you know let's say designing software where it doesn't matter you know if you're together or not i think there's a lot of advantages to uh being remote you know one is focus time because there are a lot of people who need to do uninterrupted work like i was saying with you know programming or doing demos for uh, customers where it's you can actually be more productive at, at home or in an in an environment where you're not going to get interrupted at all, uh, especially if the alternatives in open office where you know you're just kind of getting interrupted constantly. And then another is that level of being able to get the great talent where you know maybe it would be true that hey, if you had these hundred people in person. Collaborating, they'd be more effective than if they weren't in person, but you might never be able to get those right hundred people in the same room on a regular basis because they live in different cities. They live far away from the office. So a lot of their time would be held commuting. So uh, I, I think, you know, there's just that element where you can get the right talent and then you can get to a very similar place in terms of collaboration with all the new technology that's come out. Uh, as well as being able to get people together in person and i think there's a bit too where you want to always in business be skating to where the puck's going the one thing we know is that all this remote collaboration software it's only going to get better i mean just think how much better i mean really zoom is now even compared to when the pandemic started they've added a ton of functionality everyone's got some better cameras better noise canceling mics uh, and I can only imagine, you know, where this is all going to go in, you know, in, even in one year, but much less in five or 10 years, how, how good this remote, uh, the remote tool set will be. And I think, uh, you know, if you're setting yourself up to learn from that, you're, you're kind of going with the tide in knowledge work versus if you're, you know, just kind of ignoring all the, the remote collaboration software and all focused on getting people to one physical space, you're you're gonna to have to keep fighting and uh going upstream
1: mm-hmm. exactly those are all very very good points um now greg we're, as we wrap up uh our very insightful conversation thank you so much again for for having us or being with us today um i just have one more question for you and that is if you could give any piece of advice to 14 year old greg what would you say
0: I think a lot of it's just about uh, perseverance. You know, with, with business, I find it's always, uh, always a marathon, never a sprint. So it's always just keep going and uh, keep building and, and iterate and figure out what works
1: amazing uh greg thank you so much again for joining us today really i appreciate you taking the time and even with all of the like rescheduling that we had to do from last week um really thank you so much we've had a great time with you today
0: my pleasure thanks so much for having me on
1: a big thank you again to greg for his incredibly valuable insights if you're looking for a top digital agency for your next project, look no further than designrush.com marketplace. Here, you'll find a range of agencies tailored to make your project a success. Remember to like and subscribe for more inspiring talks with industry leaders. Again, I'm your host, Bianca Mayer. Stay curious and join us for the next episode.